Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of our podcast. Uh, where at Sciencespo Research, we talk to Sciencespo faculty, to our researchers who work on most important issues of our time. And in our second season, in the second season of our podcast, we talk to researchers who work on issues of democracy, autocracy, and populism. And today with me, I have a great pleasure and honor to have Julia Kaje, Associate Professor of Economics at Sciences Po. Uh, Julia uh, published several books, which we will discuss. Julia just received a prize of the best young economists, uh, from which you can uh, uh, understand that she's under 40 years of age. Um, and uh, she's a leader of a new uh, research and policy network at Center for Economic Policy Research uh, on Media Plurality. And with that subject, I would like actually to start our conversation. Uh, Julia just uh, published a book on a very important different subject, and we will discuss that book as well. But she, uh, as a researcher, she started, started her career working on media, economics of media, and her first book was actually called Saving the Media. Later on, she worked uh, more on this subject, publishing research papers in the leading economics uh, journals. And she published another book on Système Bellare, on Bellare system, which we are going to talk about. And basically, uh, uh, the subject of this um, uh, research of Julia is the business model of modern media. To what extent, Julia, we should be worried about how media world works now? We should worry about competition objectivity of today's media industry. How is that important for our democratic institutions and what should be done? So this is a very big question. Uh, I, I think the, the, the main threat uh, that we see today in a number of countries is the fact that we have uh, increasing concentration uh, of the media industry. And not only that we have increasing concentration, but uh, that if you look at media ownership, media tends to be owned by a small numbers of people who basically makes money from outside of uh, of the media industry. So the, the, what is important is to try to understand why. And this is partly due to the fact uh, that uh, the business model of the media is under threat. Basically, for years, uh, the media have relied uh, on advertising to be able to pay uh, for their newsroom. It varies a lot from one country to the other. In a country like the US, uh, if you take the, the New York Times, but it was true for an average daily newspapers, advertising revenues over total revenues represented for years uh, up to 80 or 90 percent of total revenues. In a country like France and is in the majority of the European countries, it was more between like 40 and 50% because of the smaller size of the advertising market. But basically, without ads, you were not able to uh, support quality journalism. I'm not saying that it's good like to have advertising rather than not to have advertising, but it was uh, the state of, uh, of the industry. What happened with uh, increasing competition uh, of the media industry to, to begin with? So first, after newspapers, the entry of radio was a little bit of a shock, but not too much because at the time the news market was still increasing. Then you had competition from TV, which was the first uh, huge negative shock for newspapers, uh, both for the readership of the newspapers, uh, for the ad revenues of the newspapers, and for the average size of, of their newsroom. And then if you look at competition from the interne internet, it has been very well documented in the case of Craigslist, for example, in the US. Uh, this was the last uh, uh, negative shock on the, on the news industry. Uh, this uh, weakened a lot the business 
business model of the media and now you have an issue to know whether or not media can be profitable. So perhaps some of them can, but like a lower number compared to before. And given that you had uh, media outlets under crisis and under economic crisis, what we see in particular, like beginning in the 2010, uh, good example is the Washington Post uh, in the US with Bezos, is that an increasing number of billionaires decided to buy at a relatively low price, uh, important daily newspapers. And, and, and this has become like even stronger in the, in the following years because, uh, you had 2010 uh, as a turning point following the, um, uh, financial crisis in 2007, 2008. But then the media industry suffered a lot uh, from the COVID crisis, again, with the collapse in the uh, advertising market. And then after the uh, COVID crisis, you have the war. In Ukraine, and then you have a, an increase in the, in the price, in particular, of the paper, and the advertising industry is still not recovering. And so we see uh, media outlets that are very weak, and when they are very weak, in fact, they can easily be bought uh, by uh, people who buy the media to buy influence rather than to make money out of them. Yes, this is a scary development. Indeed, uh, we can go back to uh, papers uh, by your um, uh, advisor at Harvard, Andrei Schleifer, about 20 years ago, he published a paper on this on ownership of media around the world, warning us that owners of media can extract huge private benefits of control and use media to exercise influence. And there you can uh, cite Italian economist or Italian-American economist uh, Luigi Zingales, who calls this Medici vicious circle, where you get uh, um, money to get power and you have power to protect your money. And in a sense, this is essentially a Berlusconi model. Mm -hmm. You get control of media to protect your non-media business from competition to make more money so that you can buy more media. To what extent this is a general phenomenon? To what extent you can see that also in the US, in France? To what extent it's not just Berlusconi? Oh, it's not just Berlusconi. So we, we know a lot of uh, to, on Berlusconi thanks to like very nice work by uh, economists like Ruben Durante, for example, and Brian Knight have a very nice paper on that in which they, they show the, the media bias of Berlusconi, but not only of the private media owned by Berlusconi, but also of the public media uh, when Berlusconi was in uh, was in power. In the US, of course, we know the example of Rupert Murdoch, uh, but he is not the only one. Murdoch was a historical one. Uh, then there, there is an increasing literature that look at... Uh, ownership concentration with a Sinclair group that is more on, uh, on, on the TV side and in particular on the local uh, TV side and we can go further with other examples uh, and uh, this is something that uh, I worked on uh, a lot in the case of uh, France so you were mentioning before uh, my book uh, against Bolloré so with Vincent Bolloré Vincent you're not against Bolloré you're against Bolloré's system against Bolloré Yes, but at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> there is a little bit of the confusion. But yes, against Bolloré system. Uh, so Vincent Bolloré, we often uh, were used to present it, uh, in particular in the in the U.S. media. There were a huge investigation by the, by the New York Times, and they were like the the French Robert Murdoch. Uh, so these guys uh, is a billionaire who makes money from outside of the media industry for for years and who like beginning the 2014 2015 decided to invest a lot uh, in French media so the first thing that he did is that he bought uh, something called the Canal Plus group uh, that encompasses in particular three TV channels uh, one of which uh, was uh, 24 hours uh, news channel called Itele at the time now it's called uh, CNews uh, then uh, he, he took control of uh, one of the main private radio channels that is called uh, Europe 1. then he bought uh, the main magazine group 
groups uh, in France. So he has the highest uh, circulation of magazine uh, in all French media that was called uh, Prisma. Uh, recently, he took control of two uh, uh, weeklies in France, uh, Paris Match and Le Journal du, Dédé, uh, Le Journal du Dimanche, the JDD. And they were the longest uh, strike uh, in the French private media, uh, in fact, in June, July, more than 40 days, uh, to protest uh, against this uh, change uh, in ownership and not really against the change in ownership because he, he took control before June, uh, but because he decided to impose to the um, to the journalist uh, a new editor-in-chief uh, from one day to the other. Uh, they, 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 there was a vote by the journalist and 99% of them uh, opposed this new editor-in-chief and uh, he didn't, didn't really care about that. Uh, and what is interesting in the in the case of Bolloré that uh, before we had uh, a lot of anecdotal evidence and with some uh, colleagues uh, like uh, Moritz Engel uh, now with at the European Commission, Camille Voix at Mannheim and Nicolas Hervé who is a computer sci scientist at the INA, we have a paper that is called uh, Hosting Media Bias and in which we, we really try to quantify uh, how um, basically uh, Bolloré uh, changes Uh, the, the, the editorial line of the media outlets he bought and in particular the fact that he increasingly uh, have a radical right guest uh, on CNews uh, following uh, the, the, the change in ownership. This is actually the most important question. So they buy media in order to change editorial policy and some people would be very cynical saying I need to change my editorial policy in order to give me more influence so I protect my business, non, my non-media business. Some people don't change much. You mentioned Jeff Bezos and Washington Post. We don't see a great change in the editorial line of uh, Washington Post. Some people like Elon Musk buy Twitter and change in editorial policy is all over the place, sometimes in the good direction, sometimes in a very strange direction. Uh, and what you're saying is Bolloré has changed uh, editorial policy into a dimension which seems to me ideological rather than uh, commercial, yes. right? And so you think that this is his ideological preference rather than his commercial uh, interest. That's yes, right. and this is something he's increasingly upfront, in, fa in fact, about. And he, he did that not only in the, in the media he bought, uh, but also in the publishing industry, uh, where there were some like... So he bought a lot of like uh, important publishing companies uh, in which he, he did some censorship of, of books, uh, which he, he did not like. So in this case, it's, it's closer to Murdoch, let's say, uh, to what we saw with Fox News. So Fox News, the difference is that Murdoch created uh, Fox News from scratch, uh, while Bolloré uh, bought existing media outlets, but he used... This media outlets in order to push a uh, political agenda is not Berlusconi in the sense that he's not himself directly involved uh, into politics, but he has a very clear uh, political agenda. And if you look at the recent uh, French uh, political history, in fact, the, 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 the huge success of Eric Zemmour in the last presidential election, so the guy uh, was uh, like a simple like a journalist, uh, like French intellectual Uh, between quotes uh, and then from one day to the other he became like candidate uh, for the presidential elections in some pools he went up to 17 or 18% at the end of the day he ranked fourth which is a very good score uh, when this is your first election and this is due Uh, to the very positive and important media coverage he, he got in particular from uh, from CNews. Yes, uh, if we were in the US, uh, a normal uh, devil's advocate would be First Amendment. We believe in freedom of speech. If uh, I want to support this or that candidate, I uh, buy media, I build my own media, I buy my own publishing house, and I publish what I want. What is wrong with this argument? 
So this is basically what is also happening in France. So I guess we have the same protection or we have the same lack of protection. So the, 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 the main issue is the following. Uh, according to me, media, the, the public, uh, they publish uh, or they produce, in fact, a public good that is information. And this is uh, the, the reason why we have a lot of public subsidies uh, for media outlets. This is more true uh, in France uh, than in the US. So for example, in France, like in like the majority of the EU country, you have reduced VAT. Uh, for uh, media outlets uh, and you have also some direct subsidies. This is not the case uh, for TV and for radio, but basically for TV and for radio, you will uh, gain uh, for free from the state uh, the, the, the right uh, to broadcast on a given channel, which is not what happened in all the different countries. Huh? In some countries, basically, you have to pay to get the right. So you, you will pay money such as a telecommunication firm uh, to get the, the right to broadcast. In France, you, you, you have this right for free. So basically, Bolloré you know like it's given for free by the French government the right to use CNews to broadcast stuff this comes with some uh, obligations and even if in the US you have some obligation you know you cannot have a TV channel and like lie on TV uh, but for me one of the obligations that is completely missing today and that should be a condition either to obtain some press subsidies or like to get the right to broadcast uh, your TV or uh, radio stations uh, would be to better protect the independence of uh, of the newsroom so the idea and the, let's take the what happened with the journal du dimanche The Journal du Dimanche was a, a newspaper that had a clear like a political bias. Uh, it was defined as like supportive of uh, Emmanuel Macron, and before so, that, for years, it has uh, clearly support uh, the traditional right, and it was something that makes sense because uh, you want to have some pluralism, and you have news newspaper on the left, you have newspaper at the center, you have newspaper on the right, and that's pretty nice. Uh, what happened is not so much the fact that it changed the editorial policy, that it changed the editorial policy from one day to the other against the opinion of the entire uh, journalist. And what I think we need to introduce are better protection to protect the journalist in their freedom to uh, inform us. And this is really what is uh, missing as of today. So, uh, yes, in the UK, you also have a public uh, television company, public radio company, BBC, and you also have a regulator called Ofcom, which also fights against uh, biased uh, mm -hmm. reporting. But uh, what it, I think even there, you don't really have a protection uh, of independence of the newsroom. Right? No. But at least you, you demand uh, objectivity of news reporting, and the companies that don't do that uh, get reprimanded and sometimes closed down. But uh, to come back to this argument, whether you want a public television or private television or competitive private television, um, I myself, I worked on... Uh, Oligarchs in Russia, who of course were exactly in in uh, exactly interested in the in using media for getting power and then power to get more money from their non-media business, and then people were very unhappy about that situation and actually welcomed centralization of media space by Putin, who then introduced uh, total public censorship. And it's not just uh, in Russia; even in Ukraine, before the war, people talked about that we have three, four TV channels owned by oligarchs. And that may actually be better than one single TV station with four channels mm -hmm. controlled by the state because that is uh, dangerous for democracy. To what extent do you think that uh, three, four private oligarchs are better than uh, <laughs> uh, one uh, Putin? 
No, the, the truth is that we need both. Uh, I think we all agree on the on the fact that uh, public media is not the, the solution. It's good uh, to have high quality uh, public media and to have high quality public TV in particular because they need to care a little bit less uh, about the numbers, about the figures, and they can produce, uh, you know, some shows or some movies or like uh, just broadcast some like operas, even if uh, the audience is pretty low. Uh, so this is a big difference. In fact, they don't need to do to make money. Uh, the money is a public money that we decide collectively uh, to use to to finance them. And it, this is very good to have public media, but public media is not enough. Uh, at the time in France, of course, De Gaulle was not Putin, you know. But in the 1960s in France, uh, when you old, uh, only had like uh, public TV, it was not like very high quality TV, and in particular, it was like uh, TV that was under the control of the state. So we are all very very happy with uh, the fact of having more competition. So as to have enough pluralism and this competition come from private media. But the thing is now we, 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 we just, uh, think as if private media means private media owned by some oligarchs. And something that would be of interest is to try to have some more like, uh, democratic either ownership or at least governance of the media outlets. I pushed for a long time before you mentioned saving the media. I pushed for a long time to have a much more democratic ownership of the, of the media outlets. In fact, since I, I wrote my book in 2015, I was working with plenty of like, uh, like new website of newspapers and we were, we were able to set up like newsroom owned by the journalists and, and some readers. And this works pretty well, but this works pretty well if you work with small medias. So basically you can support like five, 10, perhaps like in the best case, like uh, 15 or 20 journalists, but not much more. So basically you are not going really to compete, uh, with, um, general information, large media outlets. And for this general information, large media outlets, the truth is that if you want to set up a newsroom or even like just buy an outlet who is not doing very well, uh, you can need like up to 50 or 100 million euros. So basically, you won't raise this money from the journalists or you won't raise uh, this money for uh, from the readers. So you need like one or two big uh, shareholders that are going to invest the money. But where it becomes interesting is that you don't need to think about this system as a system where you will have an equal number of uh, uh, voting shares uh, depending on uh, how much uh, capital shares you have. Uh, this is something we are used to think about, in fact, but very often we forgot about it when it turns to the media industry. Look at Google, for example, and a lot of firms in the, in the, in the US, but Google is a very good example. You have two class of, uh, of shares. Uh, you have like class A, class, class B. Some of them have like w one voting right and the other 10. And it, it was a way for the two founders of Google, uh, when they, they, they made Google public to be sure to keep control, uh, even if, uh, they become, um, They no longer have the, uh, the, the, the majority of the, of the capital. If you look at the, at the New York Times, you also have these two class of shares in a different way, but basically only uh, journalists and former family members have these uh, shares with more voting rights and all the other uh, owners, those that have the, the public owned, publicly owned uh, shares, uh, they, 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 they have the, 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 the capital shares with less voting rights. So for example, if you look at the structure of the capital of the New York Times, The majority shareholder uh, is Carlos Slim, so a Mexican billionaire. But at the end of the day, if you look at the votes, he's not the majority shareholder. So I, I think the, 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 the way we have to think about it and the kind of system we, I think we should introduce, even like through regulation. So like, uh, again, saying that, okay, you, okay you, have, you are going to have some like public subsidies, but this cannot come like without any um, contrepartie. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think we, 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 we need to think this 
like difference between governance and try to introduce like a more democratic governance and uh, ownership. If you take Le Monde, for example, in France, uh, the, the, you have representative of the employees, representative of the journalists, representative of the readers uh, at the board uh, of, the, of the newspaper. Even if their capital share is uh, ridiculous now, <laughs> they just have like 2 or 3% of the total capital of the firm. In principle, you can have uh, different classes of shares in all industries. Sometimes you have non-voting shares, preferential shares. This is completely normal. There are people who want to get money from their investment but not getting control. Um, but uh, on the other hand, you can go, you can take your ar argument to the extreme and think about uh, newspapers or TV channels being NGOs where you actually have a board which may be appointed uh, to, uh, by uh, some rules, like you mentioned, representative of this or that or that constituency, and uh, you don't have any shareholders. Shareholders uh, don't get uh, profits from this channel, and there are some NGOs, investigative journalists, set up consortia, set up uh, uh, non-for-profit uh, media. Uh, you think this is unlikely to grow big because you need uh, big investments, uh, charities, philanthropies are not sufficient. Uh, you think this is not the model that can, can go far? Yes, we, we need to think about non-profit media organization. And I think it's, it's a very good idea because at least like, at the beginning, we were mentioning the, the, the fact that the, the, the business model of the media is in crisis. And at least if you have like non-profit model, it's a good way to go in particular when you want to produce a public good uh, information. But, but I think it's, it's not enough to have the non-profit organization. You have to look at the composition of the board. Uh, we have very good examples and we have very bad examples. So, for example, if you look at The Guardian, and I think this is the one model uh, that shows that you can have a very large non-profit organization owning a media and the media is doing very well. Uh, but if you look at the, 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 the composition of the board, you have representative for the employees, you have representative for the journalists. Uh, basically, the, 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 the guys that set up uh, the, the non-profit organization like decades ago, they, they, they lost all power. Perhaps you have like two seats for members of the family, but this is peanuts. Uh, you have other uh, media in other countries. So take, for example, in France, Liberation as of today. And now, officially, it is owned by a non-profit organization. But if you look at the guy who have all the, the, the real power within this non-profit organization, basically, it's the billionaire uh, who put his capital share into the non-profit organization. For him, it was not a huge uh, monetary uh, sacrifice because he earned much more uh, than the value of, uh, of Liberation. Plus, he took advantage of some uh, tax deductions in between. Uh, and a lot of people say, oh, look at this guy. He's so nice. Now, uh, Liberation is owned by a non-profit organization. But at the end of the day, in terms of independence, it's not a huge improvement. So we really need to think uh, about these two aspects uh, at the same time. And for a long time, people were just saying that ah, foundation can be a nice uh, alternative because at least with a non-profit organization we won't have any issue of independence in fact we can uh, as long as uh, the, the equivalent of the billionaire or the oligarch have actual control of the, of the non-profit organization that's, that's a very good point because people think about non-profit as something uh, benevolent uh, uh, contributing to the common good but that's actually true as long as uh, we talk about uh, non-money losing business if you have a money losing business you depend on uh, on uh, your benefactors, and that creates this uh, problem with the independence. Because yes, uh, the shareholders are uh, philanthropists, and they are not expecting to get any money back, which is true. 
But uh, if they are actually getting influence through the lack of independence, that may be dangerous. I would like also to mention that in your book, you talk about the comparison about news media and uh, universities. And we sit in a university, which is a nonprofit. Uh, and uh, this is something that uh, not everybody knows, but most important and rich universities are not for profit universities, including the private universities. They're actually uh, foundations, uh, they're NGOs. Um, so I would like to come back to the book uh, that you just published uh, together with uh, Tamai Piketty. This is your first book with Tamai Piketty, and therefore your longest book with <laughs> 850 pages for Tama. This is probably his shortest book. Um, and this is the book which is called uh, History of uh, Political Conflict. Uh, it's still uh, only available in French, but it will soon be translated into English. So History of uh, Political Conflict, uh, Elections and Social Inequalities in France from 1789 to 2022. And this is an enormous uh, uh, data collection effort. There is a website which is unhistoriedconflictpolitique.fr where you have data on all elections uh, in France for 36,000 communes. So it's actually uh, the enormous, uh, enormous contribution to the public good which you uh, the data which you collected uh, uh, with uh, Thomas, so you know pretty much everything about French elections on the local level. And uh, so um, your book uh, goes uh, through all the variables you can look at. And in, in that sense, uh, it's not surprising that the book is that long. But if, if I ask you to summarize your own most important finding from the book, what have you learned from this analysis? I think the, the the most important finding at the at the end of the day, and this is not something we were expecting uh, when we began this work, is the growing importance, and in particular the importance today of what we call the uh, geosocial class. So basically, we look at all the socioeconomic variables to explain uh, patterns of vote. Uh, we look at uh, wealth, we look at uh, income, uh, we look at education, uh, we look at socio-professional category, whether you, you are blue-collar workers, or white-collar workers. Uh, we look at uh, the, the size of, uh, of, the, of the commune where you live or the size of the commune uh, to which uh, you, you are close. Uh, we look at all these different dimensions uh, and basically what we found is that as of today, we can explain 70% uh, of the difference uh, in the voting patterns uh, between communes uh, using these uh, geosocial variables. Uh, this is huge. Uh, in 1981... I, I like to take 1981 as a as a comparison because in France, you know, the first election of François Mitterrand, and in general, it, it's always presented, you know, as the main left-right uh, political divide in France. With the same variables, we were able to explain like 50% uh, of the of the voting differences in 80. 48, we were able to explain 30%. Uh, historically, it's not very surprising that we explain much less because of the role played by geography at the, at the time. Uh, and for, for example, in the 1848, if you add uh, stuff like uh, the department fixed effect, you will increase by a lot the explanatory power of your model, which, which is no longer the case. And at the, at the time, in particular, for legislative elections, general elections, uh, you, you, you had like voting patterns that were much more determined locally. And a huge change uh, in between is the nationalization of the media, uh, which may make like uh, politics uh, much more national. 
And as of today, we, we see this weight of uh, geosocial, geosocial factors, geosocial class, and, and I think this, this, this importance and, and the, 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 the growth in the importance of these factors in recent years is, is really one of the main lessons that we have. And, and, the, and, the, and the second one uh, that I, I think in, in, at some point in the future, we would like to, to study that in different contexts, for example, in the US context, which would be much more difficult because officially you just have like two parties. <laughs> So at the end of the day, if you really want to understand what is happening, it's, it's, it's much harder. But it, it, the, the fact that the rural, di, uh, rural urban divide, which basically disappears in France, it did not entirely disappear, but see its importance reduced by a lot in France uh, from the 1920s to the 1980s, uh, really came back. Uh, and that on top of the um, divisions uh, of the voting patterns on socio-economic issues, you really see a very, very strong uh, rural-urban divide. This is something I, I, I read about in, in the past when uh, reading like... Uh, Political scientists uh, in the in the U.S. trying to understand the vote for the Tea Party at the time. We all forgot about the Tea Parties, but you know there were a huge literature in the 2010 uh, to try to understand uh, the, the, the 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 Tea Party and to try to understand the the voting pattern of what is called in the U.S. the flyover counties uh, because you have people from the two coasts that basically just took the plane and never stopped in in, in between. And we see the same thing in France. Uh, and I think. Uh, we need to work much more on that. And in the future, I hope we will. I think we can also see that in a number of European countries. And this importance of the the comeback of the rural-urban divide is also something we are not expecting. And I think that uh, can teach us a lot uh, about the new dimensions of the political conflict. So when you talk about geosocial classes, geo is urban-rural and social is income, wealth and education, right? Uh, and this is uh, this is an interesting question because recently, especially after the rise of populism in the 21st century, in the last 10 years in particular, people started to talk about change in cleavages, a change in political cleavages from left to right to identity-based. And uh, Tama Piketty has written a lot about this as well. Um, to what extent uh, this is something that you find as well? You seem to... Uh, be saying that uh, left-right divide, uh, class-based divide is more important than identity-based divide. No, so so not the left-right divide in in the sense that uh, the, the 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 political situation uh, as of today in France is with three big political parties. Uh, so the the left-right divide di disappears uh, like in in the 1990s, like 2000. But one of the things that we claim is that it might come back, uh, and there is a high probability that this. Uh, uh, left-right divide uh, come back, but what what is true is that we insist a lot on this uh, uh, divide on like class uh, dimensions. But again, like not only class, there is this geosocial class because we want to like alight the the new importance of the uh, urban uh, rural divide. On, on identity, what we do is that at the commune level, on top of like looking at income, wealth, education. Uh, kind of jobs that we have, uh, we can introduce variables that measure uh, for the share of uh, immigrants, for the share of foreigners, and also for the, the, the weight of the different religion. Uh, before, I was telling you that with the geosocial class, we explain 70% of the variation of the votes between communes. If you add these dimensions, you increase the explanatory power of your model up to 72 or 73%. So basically, it's, it's not nothing but it's not a very, very important uh, factor. And also, and it's also an important finding, uh, according to us, uh, because if you watch TV, 
in particular, if you watch CNews, you have the impression that everything is about identity. And what we show is that it might not be, uh, it might not be the case. And in particular, when we look at the reason why people vote for the Rassemblement National, so for the radical right uh, as of today, enfin, not for the, for the Rassemblement National, this is different if you look at Eric Zemmour and Reconquête, then you really see an anti-migrants, uh, 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 um, And voting pattern, we see that uh, uh, opposition to uh, to foreigners do not play such a big role. It was the case in the past. In fact, if you look at elections in France in Pen that uh, we have uh, what's called contact hypothesis, uh, which dates back to uh, the work of uh, Gordon Alport in 1950s, where you see people, you, you interact with them on a daily basis, you work with them, you start liking them despite your pre-existing prejudices and stereotypes. And this is something that we can see that uh, when refugees, including Syrian refugees, who look different and speak differently, Uh, are resettled to your community, you see that people actually start voting less for Marine Le Pen to the extent that uh, there are not too many refugees and the cost of that is not too high. Uh, if there are too many, like for example in the uh, refugee crisis in Greek islands where uh, that was uh, uh, in the range of about 100 of refugees per native That becomes then becomes unsustainable. So, <clears throat> but in smaller numbers, one, two, three, four uh, refugees per hundred natives, it uh, really doesn't doesn't create the uh, identity based response. And actually, if you look at vote for Brexit, you see that people who voted for Brexit are your favorite uh, um, uh, rural voters, people with relatively uh, low education, living in places where you have zero presence of immigrants and refugees. And in that sense, your measure of a uh, uh, share of immigrants or foreign-born population of re or refugees is probably not capturing this effect that uh, Marine Le Pen is talking about. Yes, uh, I, 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 I want to, to, to insist on, on what you just say about Brexit because I, I think it's a very important point. One of the reasons why, according to us, we see this rise uh, in the voting patterns, voting shares of Marine Le Pen is really something that we relate uh, to two uh, political events, 1992, uh, the Maastricht uh, Treaty, and 2005, uh, the vote on uh, uh, the EU Uh, referendum. What you see in both cases is that there is a split in the electorate uh, within the left and within the right, and you re people really vote uh, depending on their uh, revenues. But you also see like the comeback of the rural uh, urban uh, divide, and basically poor people uh, in rural places, both in 1992 and 2005, they voted against uh, Europe, and they voting against uh, Europe not because they they, they were unhappy with. Uh, Uh, Polish plumber uh, by, because they were racist in a sense but because they were unhappy uh, with the international competition and I think there is a huge literature in, the, in economics now that document 
the link uh, between the, 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 the rise of the vote for the radical right and, and this uh, uh, opening uh, to international trade. And this, poor people in rural area in France, like in the UK, they suffered a lot uh, from the international competition. They suffered a lot from desindustrialization. They suffered a lot also from the lack of uh, public services. And at the end of the day, they did not really benefit from the EU as uh, more urban people did even people with not like huge uh, income because they were uh, able like to travel more easily and to get access to some benefits uh, that are linked to this internationalization so I really think the, 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 the key factor one of the key factors according to us is really this uh, divide on the on the EU uh, on the EU question uh, after that like to like to uh, answer the, 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 the question you, you, you asked me Uh, de facto, we, we look at the share of migrants in a linear way, and perhaps we should do that in a, a less uh, uh, parametric uh, way uh, to, to take this factor into, uh, into account. One of the things we do in the, in the book, uh, and it's why the, the, the book is very, is very long, uh, on top of having our like, quantitative analysis uh, by using this new common level data, of course, we read a lot uh, all the work that has been done, in particular by qualitative sociologists and political scientists, a uh, number of them who work in, uh, in Sciences Po. And this uh, was super helpful to us to uh, understand the, the determinants of uh, the voting pattern for the radical right. In particular, because you have like qualitative long-term interviews uh, with uh, Rassemblement National voters that allow us to like alight what we see like in the quantitative data, but we cannot just understand with measure of income, wealth, education, or like employment. Well, this sounds a bit pessimistic. I would actually say that if... Uh Uh, we are talking about economic factors that drive uh, the rise of radical right and other uh, voting trends that we don't like, uh, or some people don't like. Uh, I think uh, the good news is for economic problems, we have economic solutions. And if we just avoid mistakes like uh, austerity in the UK after global financial crisis, you could avoid leaving people behind and not providing them with public services and and social support. And some of those lessons have been learned, actually. And during COVID, uh, the state was much more generous than after the global financial crisis. Which brings me to, to the point uh, that you mentioned already about the party structure. Uh, the book talks a lot about uh, three-party structure, as you said, center and two uh, parties on the left and on the right. And you argue that we may actually see a return to two-party system. And here... I have a question. Uh, you seem to be quite optimistic about a bipartisan system, two-party system, but you can also look at the U.S. This is the country which is compared to France a lot. It's also a presidential democracy. And uh, that party is not doing very well in terms of polarization, in terms of predictability of policies, in terms of ra rational policymaking. Uh, to what extent you're afraid that we may end up with the same polarization of parties which cannot talk to each other. And uh, the center may disappear, mm -hmm. but the parties on left and right will still be very far from each other. So it's not a two-party system in France, even in the uh, 1910 to 1980. It's really in terms of like a big blocks, uh, electoral uh, coalitions in a sense. You have a big electoral coalition on the left. Uh, as of today, in the one on the left, you have at least five political parties. You have the Communist Party, the Socialist Party. 
you have euh, LFI, la France Insoumise, you have Europe Écologie Les Verts, and you have like, some smaller parties. Even the center uh, of Emmanuel Macron is more than Emmanuel Macron. You have Ensemble, you have Horizon, you have UDI. And then the radical right uh, bloc, uh, you have Rassemblement National, uh, we put also there, uh, les Républicains, you have Zemmour. So on average, in each election, we can have in France like up to, it varies a lot, but for the legislative election, in general, in the district, you have up to 22 different candidates. Uh, the, 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 then we, we try to rationalize them a little bit, but on average, we have between like 12 and 15 different uh, political uh, nuances uh, for each of these uh, elections. So this is more about like uh, parties being able to, uh, to, to, to work together uh, and, and to be in power together and to form some coalitions. And we think that basically what might happen in the future is that the, the, the center that we have uh, today with like 30% of the vote basically might disappear and with a recomposition between like a, a, a big block, big electoral block on the left and a big electoral block on the, on the right. This is something that is very different from the US situation where the, the voting system is different. Just have like one round election and this is uh, leading to something that we also see but disappeared a little bit in the UK for decades, like just this two-party system. Now, the, the two-party system in, in, in US politics, I guess if we were like talking to a political scientists in the US, they, they would say like, no, because what we need to look at are the primaries election. Uh, but then there is the issue of like partisan divide during the, uh, the, the, the main elections. And in particular, you, you have to add on top of that the fact that uh, you, you vote at the level of the state. So in some states, it, it matters uh, whether or not you vote, but we, we have, I guess, both you and I, like a lot of like friends in, the, in Massachusetts that very often say, okay, we don't need uh, to go and vote because we know what will be the electoral results in Massachusetts. So we, we don't care about our, 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 our votes. So those are a lot of difference. Still, I think the, the, the question you ask is of importance, whether we will have like an increasing polarization of, uh, of, the, uh, of the political system. And this is something that we can observe in France, even as of today, with these three big blocks. Uh, and in particular, this is uh, one of the reasons why, and I know that all my colleagues are, are not very happy with that, uh, but we never talk about populism. Uh, we don't like a lot the, 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 the word populism, because we have the impression that this is often used to disqualify uh, both uh, the, the, the political parties on the right, the political parties on the left, or on the radical right, radical left, and to put them in, in, in a sense in the, in the same group that would be less uh, legitimate uh, to, to, to be part of a government. Uh, if you look at what is happening like today in the news, and the, and, and, and the importance it's taking in French politics, while this is like just an international uh, disaster we should like all care about and, and be very, very sad about, about that. But we see that the, the main consequence now, if you look the front page of the French newspaper, it's about like increasing polarization of the French political life and whether or not like a PS and NFI are, are going to be able to, to have some electoral coalition. And I think this is one of the signs of the, of the political polarization and the, 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 the media really, really do not help uh, here, neither the media nor the social media Uh, that try to amplify this phenomenon of uh, filter bubble, political polarization, and all this kind of uh, of things. We are very optimistic in the book at the end of the day because we are optimistic person. Uh, but from times to times, in particular, you know, this week, it's pretty hard to be uh, as optimistic as uh, we used to be. Yes, uh, oh, we talk in the second week of October, which uh, follows the uh, beginning of the war in the Middle East. And uh, after uh, the fall of Nagorno-Karabakh, Karabakh, 
and uh, the war in Ukraine is still continuing, so it's very hard to become, uh, to remain optimistic. Yet, I would say that, uh, as I mentioned, the book actually gives an optimistic message, which is uh, if the problems are class problems, we know how to solve cl class problems, and uh, we can use uh, economic tools to address economic challenges. Uh, in the end of uh, each uh, episode, I usually ask uh, my guest uh, to provide solutions. I already mentioned some solutions, but if that you are the boss, uh, if you want to change economic policy, public policy, electoral system, what would be your priorities? If that depends on you, but the the first thing uh, I will do is to change media regulation and like to uh, implement some laws. Uh, that will like better protect uh, journalists' independence. I think it matters uh, for a lot of things, for a lot of dimension. First thing, uh, the second thing, and this is part of my work. I guess I will do a better job at uh, regulating the the funding of uh, of democracy. I think this is an other big issue uh, that we face in a very large number of countries, uh, but not only in the U.S. You know, even in a country like France. So try to first improve the quality of the uh, public debate by tackling issues and regulating regulations linked to the media, by tackling issues and regulations linked uh, to uh, the, the, the way political parties and democracy work. Uh, That's your book, uh, Price of Democracy, price where of democracy. you suggest that uh, uh, we should ask uh, taxpayers actually to redirect part of their taxes to fund political parties. In an equal way. In an equal way. As uh, friends and many European countries say, uh, we'd better have society funding political parties, otherwise there will be oligarchs and sometimes or in governments that exactly. fund our politicians. A little bit like for the for the media at the end of the day. And then other thing that I push a lot uh, regarding like the, the, the fact of improving the, the, the way democracy works, and this is something I am like working on uh, like from an academic point of view too, uh, is to better document the importance of descriptive representation. So the fact that people want to have uh, uh, politicians that look like them. And you have like uh, also a lot of very interesting research now in the case of Sweden uh, that link this rise of the radical right with the fact that they do a better job at descriptive representation. So basically they will have blue-collar workers both among their uh, candidates and MPs, which is not the case in the majority of the democracies. And I think also here we need some regulation if we think that it's important. Uh, we did some regulations regarding what is uh, called like gender parity, like to have a better representation of women. And I, I think we should think about doing stuff that is similar uh, regarding social parity uh, for a better representation of the of the blue-collar uh, blue workers. Uh, and I think the, the last uh, stuff, but this is more like from a, a policy point of view, uh, and this is based on some of the conclusions that we have, but not, not really on some academic research. Uh, but basically, the big challenge for the for the future is to is to know how to have some uh, environmental policy that is going to uh, convince uh, the the the, the blue-collar workers uh, and the poor within the society. One of the findings we have in the book, that this one is sad. I think this is the saddest finding that we have in the book is that we, if you, we look at the the, the vote voting patterns uh, for the ecologists party, like Europe Ecology Les Verts, but not only, like since 1974, so the first time we had an uh, ecological uh, candidate uh, in the in the French uh, elections, we see that uh, they, there is a very strong relationship between the, the vote uh, for this ecologist party uh, and the revenue uh, of the voters. Uh, and basically, as of today, the big question is whether we are able to have a uh, uh, political parties that fight for ecology that is also uh, able to convince the majority of the population and in particular the more modest uh, citizens and the more modest voters and I think this is supposed to think 
about this issue of uh, environment uh, in relationship with inequality. Look at carbon inequality in relationship uh, with income inequality. Uh, this also involves a lot the rural-urban uh, divide because very often, you know, people are, are looking at people um, and living in like small areas saying that you are <laughs> the, 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 the one because of which we have a lot of like uh, uh, climate uh, change because you are the one with like your small house and small car. But these guys are very low uh, income on average and a small house and a small car and they never take the plane. And, and I think at some point we will need to like to tackle this issue much more, much more carefully. So if I, if I was in, in charge, I guess I, I would begin to work seriously on this, <laughs> on this issue. Luckily, we have uh, researchers in Sian who work exactly on this issue in the, pre in the previous season, in the first season of our podcast. We had yeah, Lukas Ansel, <laughs> who described his research uh, working on this. Unfortunately, we don't have time for more, even though the book has a lot more stuff uh, talking about turnout, uh, how people show up for vote, talking about the direct and representative democracy and what you mentioned about descriptive representation is exactly a challenge for our societies, challenge for our representative democracies when our uh, parliament members are usually richer and better educated than median voters. And uh, the book has a lot to say about this, so I will not spoil it. And please uh, either read the French version or the English version, which will come out soon. Thank you very much, uh, Julia. That's all for now. Stay tuned for the next episode to talk about democracy, autocracy, and populism. Science, science, science.